I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but um, the world seems a little bit more chaotic every day. Turn on the news and we get stories of wars and atrocities and tens of thousands, perhaps millions of people displaced around the world. There is terror and hardship. There are national and ethnic clashes. We have seen in recent months in our own country target or abuses by police and the, in return the targeting of, and sometimes killing of those police. We have seen a crazy and frankly often radically offensive political campaign over the last several months that culminated a couple of nights ago in a rally being called off because of ugliness and violence. Chaos is everywhere in our world. And I haven't even mentioned the normal day-to-day things like this morning when not even the dog knew when to get up and it's going to take me another three weeks to figure out how to change the clock in my car. But at the same time, we're told that God is a God of peace. Jesus says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Peace is at the heart of who God is. And as we work towards the end of 1 Thessalonians, I think we're going to see that this is where Paul is landing. Peace is what Jesus offers to his followers. But how do we live there? How do we live in peace in a chaotic world like ours? And sometimes we're tempted to think that The chaos of the world around us is new and different. But I want to remind us of what was going on in the first century. The world of the Thessalonian believers. Paul was chased out of their city, we learn in Acts, and they had very little leadership because of that. That is why Paul sent Timothy back. We remember that. This church had undergone suspicion and persecution because they had left their culture behind. They had left their gods behind. There was chaos, apparently, of some level, even in their church. In chapter 4, we learned that there was at least some taint of sexual immorality. And at the very least, there was confusion and possibly even false teaching about the coming of the Lord. And those are just the things we know about. Take a look at every one of Paul's letters, and we find that a large part of his time is spent on correcting problems in the church. Chaos isn't new. So how do we find peace in that chaos? Our passage today, I believe, gives us three ingredients to finding peace. Here is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 22. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in highest regard and love because of their work. 
live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject whatever is harmful. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your instruction. And I pray that today we would see how to have peace in our chaotic world. That you would show us that you are indeed the God of all peace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is a passage that at first glance seems like just a rapid fire list of things to do. But I think that there is a unity here. And in verse 13, we see something of the keystone where we're told to live in peace with one another. As I was thinking about this passage, I thought about the fact that culturally we tend to focus on personal happiness, not peace. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy. But when we focus first on happiness and not on peace, it changes our outlook, our way of being in the world, so to speak. We end up making ourselves the focus of our lives. And we often innocently build our lives around things that make us happy, things that we're passionate about, things that matter to us. And slowly, without realizing it, I, me, and my become almost the sum total of our existence. You see, our culture tells us to celebrate the individual, the person who pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps on their own to become a success. But in our passage today, Paul doesn't start there. He starts with peace and he starts with the church. He starts with peace in community, with leading and loving one another. Paul says that peace begins in the body of Christ, all of it. The church is not simply a grouping of people. It has a structure, a form. As human beings, we need structure. The church is made up of leaders and laity, a head and a body, shepherds and flocks. There's a lot of metaphors in the New Testament for the church. But the idea here is simple and that we can see from our passage today in verses 12 to 15 especially, that these two elements, leaders and the body, have to come together, have to be part of each other in order for us to have peace. We're told in the New Testament that we are all under Christ, that we no longer need a priest, but we do need leadership. 
And in the beginning of the church, in the book of Acts, we see what happens when there isn't proper leadership. There's chaos. And actually, if we look back a little further, well, a lot further, to Exodus 18, to Numbers 11, Moses is having a hard time. He's leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he's trying to do everything himself, and he can't. And this is what he's told in Numbers 11. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit who is upon you, and I will put him upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it all alone. Leadership, a multiplicity of leadership, is necessary. And we see today, as Paul talks about the church, that leaders have responsibility. He says in verse 12, that there are, starting in verse 12, that there are three characteristics of church leaders. First, he says that godly leaders work hard. He says they work hard among you. They are not isolated. The leader's job is to work hard, that is, for the people and with the people. The job of the leader is not about having a position. It is about what they are to do. And more specifically, it is about leading people, being with people. Leaders are to work hard. You see, life is chaotic, as we know. And finding peace... Becoming like Christ as both individuals and as the church takes work. It doesn't just happen. But it doesn't stop there. Paul tells the the people of Thessalonica that their leaders are to care for each other, care for the body like Christ does. Interestingly, this passage never says leaders. It never says elders or shepherds or bishops. All of those normal words that we think of when we think of the leadership of the church. And different translations handle this a little bit differently. Some say leaders. Others, those who are over you. Or those who care for you. Why so different? Because this word itself that's used here means to stand before or to stand in front of. And the way that it was used in the ancient Greek world was interesting. It does designate a position. It does indicate the elders and all of the different ways that this is translated. What it was mostly used for was civil magistrates, the civic leaders, the people whose job it was to preside over, to govern, and to care for the people of their area, whether the city or the surrounding areas, this is a person whose job entails leading and caring. And dare I say that maybe some of the problems we're currently having in finding a leader for our own country is that we have a bunch of people who are really interested in having a position, 
And they seem to have forgotten that the position is not inherently about the power or defeating the opposition, but instead is about the best interests of the people that position is supposed to be leading in the first place. Paul says that leaders are to care for you in the Lord. That is, they are to lead in the Lord's work. That the entire group is identified in and around Jesus. The name Christian is not simply a title. It is an identifier. It's about ordering our lives around Christ. True Christian leaders care like Christ cared. Jesus led. There's no question. He had authority. Not from the position that he held. He didn't have one. But because of what he did. Because of how he interacted with those who followed him. Those who listened to him. And even those who opposed him. Think about this. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. The scribes and the priests. The Sanhedrin and even the Romans. Recognized authority in Jesus. They recognized his leadership. And it was because what he said and what he did, how he cared for the people lined up with one another. If he didn't have authority, if he didn't lead, they wouldn't have bothered to kill him. True Christian leaders strive to lead like Christ by caring for the people who follow. But there's a third way, or third identifier of leaders that Paul gives, and that is that leaders teach the truth. Because truly caring about people means that when leaders actually lead, they have to admonish. They have to teach the truth. Now, I don't know about you, but I hear the word admonish and I want to duck. Here it comes. Teacher's going to get mad at me. Tell me I'm stupid or I got it wrong or how could you believe that? And unfortunately, sometimes that's the way that Christian leaders talk. That's the way they lead. And that's not what Paul is on about here. The NLT says that leaders are to give spiritual guidance. And admonishing means correcting. But it means more than simply giving information for us to get right. It means connecting and correcting what we believe with how we behave. We don't like to be told to change. We don't like to be told that we're wrong or that we, in what we believe or how we live. But part of the leader's role is to admonish, to correct. And that's what Jesus did. He didn't simply help people by healing or making their lives easier. He encouraged, he confronted, and he challenged them to change their ways. Mark tells us that the message of Jesus was repent and believe. Repent means stop living the way you're living, change the way you're living, follow after me. It means that we have to change from self-centered lives to God-centered lives. Being admonished is not easy. It is not fun. But it is necessary. 
It's part of finding real peace in the chaos. It's more than correcting mistaken belief, though it certainly includes that. It means that we have to live rightly. Not because I have to, but because it's part of finding true peace, of living the way that God intends us to. Left to our own devices, do we really find peace on our own? Or to put it another way, what's the role of a parent? At least in part, parents have the job of correcting the wrong and selfish and self-destructive behaviors of our children. Why? Because altogether too often, we don't know what's good for us. And the choices we make lead to disharmony. They lead to the opposite of peace. And it's the job of the leader to point us back toward, to admonish, that we would follow Christ. But all combined in this discussion of Paul's on leadership in chapter 5, we also see the body's role, how we are supposed to respond. You see, leaders can't do their job and they can't fulfill what God has called them to do if the body doesn't fulfill its role. I watch hockey a lot. I watch every Blackhawks game. Eddie Olchek is one of the main announcers for the Blackhawks. And one of the things that he says all the time, he talks about role players. Role players are the guys on the team that don't have the name. They're not the best players, but he says they have two jobs, accept and execute. That's what they have to do. They have to accept their role and do it to the best of their ability. And winning teams in hockey require role players. Not tolerate, not get along with, they need them in order to succeed. And the body of Christ is sort of like that. If everyone's a leader, guess what? Nothing gets done. We need everyone. And the body of Christ, in this passage, we see, has to do several things. The first, as we look at what Paul says about leaders, is the body has to recognize, respect, and love godly leaders. Sometimes, I think, especially in our culture, we're sort of like a conversation that happened in one of the early episodes of The Simpsons, way, way, way back when. Homer says, okay, look, my boss is going to be at this picnic, so I want you to show your father some love and or respect. Lisa says, tough choice. Bart says, I'm picking respect. Before anything else, before he describes what leaders are supposed to be like, in verse 12, Paul says the body is to respect or honor our leaders. And he goes on in verse 13 to say that we should hold them in high regard or esteem, and he connects that immediately to the way we do that. It's not because of the position. It's not because we have to begrudgingly or anything like that. He says that we are to do it in love. 
We are to love those who lead us. We are to combine honor and respect and love. And we don't get to be like Bart and Lisa and try to separate the two. The leader is supposed to have those characteristics that we talked about already. And we are to recognize that position and authority, respect and love them for it. We can't separate any of those things. The way that the leader leads or the way that we respond. Those things, if you look at this passage, are all put together. And when we try to separate them out, we end up with something like this. I'll follow you if you do your part. I'll love you if you love me the way that I want to be loved. Or I'll listen to you or I'll care for you if you listen to me. And when we do that, we get into trouble and we get chaos in the very place where peace is supposed to reign. And that kind of approach, whether we are a leader or the role player, will cause problems. In verse 13, immediately after we're told to honor our leaders in love, we find the heart of this passage. Live in peace with one another. This isn't new a new idea in 1 Thessalonians. It echoes chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul says, grace and peace to you. It echoes chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where Paul urges us to seek out a quiet life, a peaceful life. This is the idea of shalom, Essentially, it is living in accordance with the way that God designed the universe. Right relationship with Him and with each other. It's the heart of the promise of the Messiah. In Isaiah, we learn that the Messiah will bring peace through His wounds. It's the heart of Jesus' teaching as we saw in John 14, 27 and in many other places, most famously in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. Now think about that. The one thing that Jesus most directly connects to being a child of God is not right doctrine is not having everything figured out. It is being a peacemaker. We can't overstate its importance. Living at peace with everyone was to become a hallmark of Christian identity. It's consistently taught by the apostles and throughout the New Testament in Romans 12:18 if it is all possible if it is possible as far as it depends on you live at peace with everyone 2 Corinthians 3:11 in Paul's final greeting he says live in peace and the god of love and peace will be with you in Hebrews 12:14 the author says make an effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy And James 3.18, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Peace is central to being a Christian. But lest we think that being a peacemaker is somehow a weak or spineless position, look at what comes next. We are to warn when sin overtakes. 
Remember, this is a discussion about behavior within the church, not of the church telling the world what to do. Not only are leaders to admonish, but Paul says believers are to warn those who are idle and disruptive. Perhaps your translation says lazy. That word means disruptive. Perhaps we're not exactly sure it refers to the fact that because people expected Jesus to return, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, they stopped working. And they were taking advantage of those in the congregation who had more wealth. Men like Jason from Acts 17, who is a benefactor. In any case, we need to remember Paul's instruction in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, to work hard. And to the reminder that he just gave, that the leaders work hard among you. In 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, we're going to see that there were some in the Thessalonian church who were idle. And Paul makes a direct contrast in that passage to the way that they are living and the way that he lived when he was among them. Those people were not so much lazy, apparently, as disordered. They weren't following the teachings of their leaders, the teachings of the church. See, believer, as believers, we have a responsibility to correct one another when we fall into sin. Not to gloat, not because we're better than someone else, not because uh, or to be busybodies, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, but because peace sometimes requires hard conversations. And sometimes we have the idea that if we don't confront the problem, we are promoting peace. No, we're not. We're letting, it, we're letting evil fester and disunity and disharmony fester. Sometimes we have to have those hard conversations. But it's not just about correcting. Paul immediately then says, encourage those in distress, the disheartened. Encouragement is crucial to the body. Everyone has times when the pressures of life, the chaos overwhelms, and we can't see the way forward. And it's in these moments, especially, that we need one another. Not armed with platitudes and pious-sounding words, often Bible verses ripped out of context, used as clubs and saying things like, well, at least, or, well, you know, God works all things, and we're not being helpful. There is a time and a place for correction, and there is also a time for encouraging. When a person is in crisis... That is not the time for admonishing, probably. That is the time for coming alongside, for grieving and supporting, for making a meal or taking a child, for being a shoulder to cry on or an ear to hear. We are to encourage the disheartened, Paul says. And in the midst of a crisis is not the time to correct bad theology or tell them not to grieve. Because these are people in danger of giving up. Maybe, in this case, they're having a hard time with the persecution. Their families are pushing them to give up this crazy religion that has pulled them away from the gods. 
Perhaps they've suffered the loss of those close to them before Christ's return, and they are discouraged. And no doubt there are people here today who need to be encouraged for whatever reason. And the body of Christ is supposed to be first to do this, not last, not even second. And closely tied to this idea of encouraging those in distress is lifting up the weak. You see, Paul first says, admonish those who are lazy or not or idle. And then he says that we are to lift up the weak, help the weak. This command tells us something important about both encouraging and admonishing. You see, there are people who can't, for whatever reason, take care of themselves. And as the church, it is our job to help them. Greek society was the society of the gymnasium, of the Olympic Games, and it disdained weakness. This is the society who several, several hundred years before in the ancient city-state of Troy would leave weak babies out to the elements to die because weakness could not be tolerated. Paul says Christians have to be different. Christians have to care for the weak. We have to be better than non-believers because we are to be transformed and we are to be peacemakers. And when we take care of the weak among ourselves, we show that we are like Christ. We show and live peace. Next, Paul says we have to be patient with everyone. I have a hard enough time being patient with myself, let alone my wife or my kids. Everyone? I think it's here that we begin to see Paul transitioning from simply the body of Christ to beyond. Going beyond the walls of the church, so to speak. Are we patient with those we disagree with? Are we patient with those we mostly agree with? Sometimes that's even harder. How about those we live with and love? Paul says our lives are to be characterized by patience, and that breeds peace. And Paul's final command for community life is to do good, both in the body and beyond. It's a two-part command. First, don't retaliate. Don't pay back evil for evil. Don't seek revenge. Talk about countercultural. When someone wrongs us, especially when we know we're right, what do we want to do? We want to lash out. We want to protect our rights. Paul says, don't do that. The Roman author Seneca, about the same time, considered revenge legitimate and perhaps even necessary to restore social honor. Paul is saying not only should we not do this, but that we must must go a step further than not retaliating. We must strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. And that positive command tells us two things. First, we have to overcome the need for revenge. Put it aside and seek the good even of the party who has wronged us, which is not easy. 
but it's necessary for peace. And second, when we seek the good of others, even that person who has wronged us, it spills over. Think about it this way. Throughout history, we see the consequences of revenge. Look at the years and decades of troubles in Northern Ireland. Look today at the constant back and forth between Palestinians and Israelis. Revenge escalates, doesn't promote peace, and it doesn't solve anything. But when we seek the good of everyone, even those who have wronged us, even those outside the church, those who don't like us, don't agree with us, when we promote peace to all, we show ourselves to be peacemakers, the children of God. But peace is not just a matter of our relations within the church. It is also a matter of our internal selves, of living in God's will. Many Christians agonize over the idea of what is God's will for my life. This happens especially, I think, when we are in our teen years, in our early 20s. And by it, we mean... What should I do with my life? What job should I have? Who should I marry? It's natural. But when we start there, when we focus on what is fulfilling to me, we're never going to find what we're looking for. We're always going to be left wanting more. What do verses 16 to 18 tell us? Rejoice always, pray continually, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Starting sort of backwards in verse 18, God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is the primary calling of the Christian. It's following God's will. Gene Green in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians writes this, God's will in Christ Jesus would not be God's will as demonstrated in Jesus' life or made known by Jesus, Rather, it is his gracious gift, the blessing of his will, which was given to the Thessalonians to follow. Understood this way, God's call expressed in his will is part of his gift. They are blessed by being drawn into the sphere of doing his will in Christ Jesus. The reason the apostle gives for the call to joy, prayer, and thanksgiving is the strongest and highest imaginable for the Christian. There are are not optional secondary they are not optional secondary characteristics of the Christian's existence but stand at the center of God's plan for his people in Christ. And when we look at it this way, we see that God's will is first and foremost about God, not about us. It's less about job or vocation than it is about our character. We all have things that we are better at or we're passionate about or perhaps even feel that God is calling us to do. And those are fine and perhaps even good. But first, we have to be God-centered. And when we are, then we can be joy-filled. Paul says rejoice always in every circumstance. Thessalonians are being or have been persecuted. At least some of them are discouraged and weak. And the world is in chaos around us, and we are to be joy-filled. We can't do that on our own. 
We need to be focused on God. We need to know what He has done on our behalf. Last week, in the beginning of chapter 5, we talked about those who had died in Christ. That we can trust God with them. And that we are not to grieve as the pagans do. As we heard a couple of weeks ago. Why? Because we know the joyful reality that God has for us and we can trust Him to be working for our best. I would add that true joy is infectious. Do you want to turn around a room? Do you want to show the love of God and promote peace? Be joyful and watch what happens. We all know that person who kind of exudes joy. What do they do? It should be noted that joy was not at the heart of the pagan religions any more than it is our culture today. Joy made Christians different. Not mere happiness, not chasing after the next high or self-centered desire, but joy. The recognition of what God has done and the reality of living a life with God. This, and not circumstances, produces real joy. Second, we are to pray continually. Not never stop praying so you can't do anything but pray. Instead, Paul is telling us something about our attitude and orientation in prayer. Pagans prayed a lot. They prayed to influence the gods, to con them into doing something for them. Christian prayer is fundamentally different. In Luke 18.1, Jesus tells the parable of the persistent widow who seeks justice from a judge. In verse 1, Luke writes, The parable was to show the disciples that they should always pray and not give up. And Paul echoes this idea of persistence. Not persistence of nagging God. But the persistence of the one that knows what God is, that God is not like that unjust judge. Jesus' parable was intended to be a contrast. The judge is unjust and only responds because at the end of the day, he doesn't want to be bothered and he's really kind of afraid that she's going to attack him. And the implication here from Jesus is clear. God wants the best for you. He is not like that. And if that guy will do the right thing, what do you think God's going to do? Being prayerful in this way is an indicator of our dependence on God. We do it not because we have to, out of duty, but because we depend on Him. He is our Creator and Father. Jesus is our Redeemer and Friend. And a prayerful life is a life of peace because it is God-focused, not self-focused. Third, we are to be thankful. This is the third way we build peace. Even more pointedly than Paul's command to be joyful, he says to do this in every circumstance, including persecution, including difficult times and places. Joy and thanksgiving are related, but they're not the same. You see, an attitude of joy gives rise to thankfulness. We are to be thankful to God for what he has done for us, for what he is doing for us, and what he will do for us. We live, Paul says in the end times, in the chaos of a world that is corrupt and running from God, but we can be thankful because we know God. We know that he is a God who has suffered as we have suffered. He is a God who has not left us ourselves he is a God who will bring us to himself and he is the God who brings peace 
So first we need to have peace in community and then peace internally. Third, peace with God. Listening to the Spirit. The final ingredient to peace in the chaos is peace with God. We're not talking about our salvation here, or more specifically, not the entry point of our salvation, but our ongoing salvation, our life with God. Verses 9 to 22, Paul turns to the question of the Spirit. How are we to relate with and interact with the Holy Spirit? And we see, I think, four things. First, we can subvert what God is doing. Paul says, don't quench the Spirit. Don't stifle or throw a wet blanket over what the Spirit is doing. Apparently, some people in the Thessalonian church had attempted to stop others from prophesying. They had attempted to stop the things that God was up to among them. And they were able to do so. Paul says, don't quench the Spirit. And the only reason why he would say that is because someone did. God allows us to subvert what he is doing. And that is a scary thought. God allows us, his people, to actively oppose him, to stifle what he is doing. And we need to be aware of that. We are not to quench the Spirit. We are not to stop others from allowing God God to work through them. And when we do, we leave peace behind. In Romans 8, 6, Paul says, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Throughout the New Testament, the Spirit is identified with peace. And when we quench the Spirit, we quench, we stifle God's peace. So what does it mean to quench the Spirit? At the very least, it means that we can disdain what God is saying. It's treating God's message and his messengers with contempt. God speaks through his people. In some cases, he gives specific words for them and to them. Today, we typically identify prophecy specifically with end times, end of the world stuff, with dates and times and four horsemen of the apocalypse and blood moons and the charismatic movement and prosperity theologians. And frankly, this is a subject I normally stay away from because I'm tired of the abuses. But it is real. It is a part of our faith. We can't just leave it behind And we won't go into great detail here, but briefly, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul gives instructions about prophecy. Specifically, in verses 1 to 5, verses 12 and 26. And there we learn the goal of prophecy. It is not about secret knowledge. It is about strengthening, encouraging, and comforting the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 3 tells us. Prophecy is less about telling the future than it is about helping build up the church. It is about God's word for us and how we are to live in the here and now. And throughout scripture, prophecy is both both real and a revelation directly from God. In the New Testament, we know that Paul and Silas, who wrote this letter, and others were considered prophets. 
We know that Paul allowed it, prophecy allowed it, and in, in, in this case, encouraged true prophets to be part of Christian worship. There is nothing in Scripture that we can point to that says prophecy is gone. I must admit, I've never seen prophecy happen according to these 1 Corinthians 14 passages in a way that I would say, okay, that's it. And Christians today disagree over the nature of what the prophetic gift is. Did it cease or not? And as you probably saw in the small group materials, Village largely identifies this with preaching of the word. But prophecy is real and a part of our lives. I was talking to Pastor Travis about this last night. And sometimes I wonder if God doesn't respond to us based on what we will listen to. And in the West, in our land of science and rational thought, God doesn't particularly use these kinds of things. But if you go to the third world, where the supernatural is everywhere, things happen. In lands where Islam controls, we hear story after story of Jesus appearing to Muslims in dreams. My question is not, why would that happen? But why not? This is the God who created the universe. But no matter what we believe about what prophecy is or what it looks like, one thing is clear. We have to test God's messengers. We are commanded here to test those who claim to speak for God. We don't have the option of ignoring or blindly accepting a prophet. We have to test what we hear. The Thessalonians had apparently already accepted false teaching regarding the parousia, the day of the Lord. So testing a prophet was necessary. False teaching abounds today. It destroys our peace with one another and with God. The early church recognized this to be true. There is, an early second, there is a second century document called the Didache that says, but not everyone who speaks in a spirit is a is a prophet, except he have the behavior of the Lord. And G.K. Beale, in his excellent commentary on First Thessalonians, lists four ways that we are to test prophecies. First, they have to be consistent with Scripture. This is what the Bereans in Acts 17 did. Second, the prophet has to acknowledge the deity and humanity of Christ, we see in 1 John 4, 1-6, and that it's through Christ's death and resurrection that we are forgiven. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 20. Third, the prophet must have a godly character. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, we will know them by their fruit. He's speaking of prophets. And finally, as we've already stated, it should build up the church, as 1 Corinthians 14 says. Finally, if we want to find peace in the chaos... We have to do something with what we hear. It's not simply enough to test the prophecies. It's not enough to live peacefully with one another or even to be thankful or prayerful. 
We have to live an active faith. Paul says, hold on to what is good and abstain or reject or stay away from every kind of evil. This command is, of course, directly related to the prophecies, but it functions as the capstone to this section. Hold on to is elsewhere translated hold firmly. And it's the same word that Jesus uses when explaining the parable of the sower in Luke 18, or Luke 8, 15. He says, But the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. Holding on to or retaining is not mental assent. It is not, I agree to this set of propositions about God or even me. It is letting the truth root down in us so that its fruit may grow. Holding on to means allowing it to transform us. True words from God will change us and strengthen us and orient us toward Him. And when we hold on to the words of the Spirit, we sow peace in our lives and those around us. The flip side, of course, is that we have to reject evil. In this case, most specifically, these false prophecies. Those words claim to be from God. They sound good, even pious, but they draw us away. They can take any of a hundred different forms and we have to reject them. Separate from those false prophets. Belief is not simply agreeing to propositions or statements about God or humanity or even our very salvation. Belief is connecting with the very real God of the universe. It is about living with him. True belief produces peace. Peace that cannot be stopped by the chaos of the world around us. This peace is bound up and found in us as we seek to live Christianly as a part of the body of Christ, whether we are a leader or not, as we develop a God-focused life and not a self-centered one, as we seek to hear the genuine voice of the Spirit in our lives. When we do this, we will know peace. We will spread it to one another and beyond. And in today's chaotic world, I can't think of a more appropriate task for those who believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of all peace, that you have called us to be peacemakers. Please help us to live in light of that today and in the coming days. In Christ's name we pray, amen.